Thanks, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, if you haven't already done so, if you would turn to Romans chapter 2, that's where we'll be. Uh, as Mike just read, we'll be in verses 25 through 29. And as you're uh, turning there, uh, I want to talk a little bit about my alma mater, which is uh, Texas A&M. And uh, thank you. Uh, in case you don't know, that's what Aggies do whenever you talk about Texas A&M. There are two types uh, of Aggies. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. Uh, certain other schools, you might have two types uh, as well, but certainly at A&M there are uh, two different types of Aggies. On one hand, you have those who have this abundance of spirit. Some might say an overabundance uh, of spirit. These are the, uh, the types of students and fans uh, that will go to every single uh, football game, every single baseball game, every single basketball game. Uh, they wear overalls and uh, they drive a maroon truck with a license plate that says Gigum and then their year or whoop and then their year or something uh, like that. These are the people that name their uh, kids after some sort of institution at A&M. So Tim's kind of one of these Aggies. I imagine that uh, uh, some future kid, he's going to name Kyle Field Hollis or Hullabaloo Hollis or uh, something like that. So this is, uh, this is the first set of Aggies, those who just have kind of this abundance of school spirit. They just kind of bleed uh, maroon. On the other hand, you have those who are called two percenters, like the milk. And, uh, and so my wife, Casey, is actually a two percenter. So we both uh, were there at A&M. I married a two percenter. We added up all of the time that she spent at Aggie football games, and it equaled one game. Over four years, she went to one half. She went to another quarter, and then she went to another quarter. All together, she went to, uh, to one game. She doesn't really know the uh, tradition. She doesn't really know the, the song. Sometimes she'll talk about Aggie cheers. We don't have cheers. We have yells. That's not even a thing. And, uh, and so she, uh, God bless her, she, she doesn't know anything about uh, A&M, right? But here's the deal. She has the ring. She has the degree. She has the diploma. Uh, she just doesn't have the spirit. She didn't go to the camp. She didn't get indoctrinated uh, it, when brainwashed into sort of Aggie culture or whatever uh, it might be. She has the ring. She has all these things. She even has a shirt uh, that I bought her, a little A&M uh, t-shirt. Uh, and so on the outside, you can really tell not much of a difference between her and Super Aggie, between her and the Hollises or something like that. Now, in addition to these two different groups, you also have those people who didn't go uh, to A&M, but they, for whatever reason, they just love A&M. I, uh, I have a buddy who didn't go there. He went to another school on a soccer scholarship, uh, but he just bleeds maroon. Like, he literally knows every single person that A&M is recruiting for football, and he knows every single stat about them. He knows their 40 time. He knows their height. He knows their weight. He knows where they went to high school. He knows the number of tackles they had or interceptions or whatever it might be. He just eats and, uh, and bleeds and breathes all of these sorts of things. He actually named his son Crew after the wrecking crew defense of A&M. And he uprooted his family from Dallas to go and plant a church in College Station. Like, this guy is super dedicated. Now, here's my question. Who's more of an Aggie? This guy who knows everything about A&M. He knows all the tradition, all the history, all of these sorts of things. Or my wife, who knows next to nothing about A&M? Well, obviously the answer to that question is beyond the purview of our passage this morning, but that's the kind of thing 
that Paul's going to answer for us as it comes to Jewishness. If you're asking the question, what really makes a Jew? Is it this external thing? Is it something like an Aggie ring? Or is it something uh, like an external mark of circumcision? Or is it this inward condition? Is it more of a spiritual thing? And Paul's going to answer the question, and he is going to be absolutely unambiguous, and he's going to say that being a Jew is something that is an internal, an inward, a spiritual condition. It's a condition of the heart. It's not something that could be measured externally. Now, this is uh, our final week in chapter 2. You can breathe a sigh of relief because we're getting out of the condemnation. Finally, we've spent four to six weeks at this point uh, just kind of seeing condemnation. Chapter 1, condemnation of the Gentiles. Chapter 2, condemnation of the Jews. And it might feel a little bit redundant at this point. It's kind of like watching later Star Wars movies and asking, how many times can they blow up the Death Star? We just kind of go over and over. How many times can we talk about the condemnation of the Jews, but I think it's really important for us to slow down and continue to walk through this section that Paul is building out this idea of universal condemnation for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, in order for us to really feel the weight of it. You ever watched a movie and uh, there's this suspense in it and it becomes palpable? Imagine if every time there is suspense in the movie, it's all of a sudden cut. You don't really begin to feel it, and what we want to do is we want to feel it. We want to feel the weight of the condemnation so that whenever we get to chapter 3, so that whenever we get to the gospel, the burden that is lifted from us makes us appreciate the relief all the more. Another reason that we want to spend more time in chapter 2 is because a lot of these things that we're talking about are really foreign to us. Issues like circumcision and the Mosaic law are somewhat foreign to our cultural context. And so uh, it probably behooves us to spend a little bit more time working through these things to get a proper understanding of them, to kind of put them within the correct cultural context. So that's what we're going to do this morning, in particular as we talk about the issue of circumcision. So let me, uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the passage together. I want to begin by just asking you to, uh, to pray. For yourself, just ask the Lord to give you a heart that is undivided, a mind that is undistracted. Would you pray that also for those around you, whether you know them or not, loved ones, strangers, just that the Lord would uh, choose for the next 45 minutes or so to give us this collective heart to know God uh, in his word and to appreciate it and to be transformed by it. And then would you pray for me that I would be faithful and bold and tethered to God's word. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to sit under your word this morning. Pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you might Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask all these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, verse 25 of chapter 2. Again, Romans 2, verse 25. Paul's writing there and he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. We've talked before about what's happening in chapters 1 and 2 is that the, the, the pressure is increasing. 
Uh, the tightness is increasing as Paul is going to build his argument. We use the illustration of a python or a boa constrictor or an anaconda or something like that. And every time that we, uh, we breathe in, there's a little bit of a tightening. There's a little bit of a tightening. There's more condemnation. There's more condemnation so that whenever we get to chapter 3, we're absolutely suffocated. We have absolutely nothing to do except cry out for help with the gospel which will come and slay the serpent that is around us. And notice, if you will, something about chapter 2. I think that's really interesting. As this tightness on us is going to increase, as Paul removes for us any other escape, any other hope other than the gospel, as this tightness increases, so does the specificity of Paul's argument. So if you were looking up in the beginning of uh, chapter 2, in verses 1 through 11, you'll see Paul talks about doing good in general. And then in uh, verses 12 through 24, you'll see that he moves from doing good, he says he moves into obeying the law, but obeying the law in general. And then in our passage today, he moves from obeying the law in general to this particular part of the law that is circumcision in particular. So he's moving from the general to the specific, slowly and methodically removing any and all grounds for boasting. In this context, uh, ethnic Jewish boasting. So let's talk a little bit about everyone's favorite topic, which is circumcision, all right? So what is circumcision? Don't worry, I'm not going to get too gross or anything like that. We're not going to show pictures or anything like that. What is circumcision? Circumcision is the removal of the foreskin from a man's sexual organ. And it's really important that you note the uh, significance of the fact that this is a sexual organ. Why? Because the promise... The promise that circumcision is going to symbolize is a promise that's involving offspring. God appears to Abraham and he blesses him and makes a covenant with him. And that covenant is symbolized by circumcision and it's passed down. What is the covenant? The covenant involves offspring. The covenant involves a seed. So that's the reason that it involves a sexual organ. And uh, God doesn't choose some other sort of ethnic uh, marker like an elongated ear or elongated necks or a a flat top haircut or something like that. There's all kinds of other things that God could have chosen, but He chose to make the symbol connect to the thing that is signified, which is this promise of offspring. In particular, one offspring who is going to come and is going to free Israel from oppression, is going to free God's people from slavery, and is going to rule and reign uh, among them. So that's why he chooses circumcision as a sign to connect the symbol to the eventual fulfillment of an offspring or a seed who would fulfill the law and deliver a- Israel from slavery and sin. And so circumcision is this distinguishing mark between Jews and Gentiles. To be uncircumcised in a Jewish mind was to be a Gentile. To be circumcised was to be a Jew. Now, there were other tribes, there were other peoples, there were other ethnicities that practiced circumcision in this context. Uh, Certain Egyptians did, certain Arabian tribes, the Samaritans. So there are others who were circumcised. But in general, if you are a first century Jew, you think along these lines. You don't classify people as black or white or Democrat or Republican. You classify people as Jew or Gentile and along those same lines as circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcision stood for Judaism in the first century context. And so they were very serious. Jews were very serious about maintaining 
this division between Jews and Gentiles. This division that exists between circumcised and uncircumcised. And this is especially true in this time period, the time period in which Paul is writing there in the first century, in those years immediately leading up to the first century. In order to really understand why this is, why are Jews so passionate about the issue of circumcision, it's helpful for us to go back in time and consider a little bit of the historical context. So I want to go back uh, to about 167 B.C. 167 B.C. At that time, uh, this Greek uh, king named Antiochus Epiphanes arrives in Jerusalem. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. But Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. And a madman he was. Just count all of the red flags and some of the things that this uh, man Antiochus Epiphanes does as he comes and, uh, and takes over and oppresses Israel. He first begins to institute new taxes. So he raises the taxes on Jews. He appoints a Benjamite rather than a Levite as a high priest, and he does so for a bribe. He does so unjustly. He sends an entire army to massacre Jewish citizens, and then he goes to the temple, this place where God meets with his people, and he loots it. He steals everything that's precious, everything that's valuable from it. He takes all of this out of it, and then he goes and he rededicates the temple, and he renames this temple this temple that is dedicated to Yahweh, and he names this after Zeus, this pagan god Zeus. Not only does he do, uh, do this, but then he goes into the temple and he offers the sacri- a sacrifice. He who is not worthy to offer a sacrifice offers a sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice. He offers an unclean animal, one of the most unclean animals for a Jew. That is, he sa- uh, sacrifices, he slaughters a pig on the altar. And he erects a statue of Zeus there in the temple. If you were to make a list of just ways that you could offend uh, Jews within the you know, 200 B.C. or something like that up to the first century, if you were to just make a list of ten different ways that you could be offensive toward them, he like knocked off nine of them or something like that. Not only did he do all of these things that we've already talked about, but he also then bans circumcision. He wants to remove any sort of distinctive, any ground for Jewish pride or Jewish boast. And so he bans circumcision, and he makes this command, this edict that says that uh, any woman who has her child circumcised, both she and the child will be slaughtered. Again, this guy is sadistic. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, also called Antiochus the Madman or Epimenes. So for Jews, this was the final insult, this banning of circumcision. Circumcision is not some sort of arbitrary or optional ritual that they could or could not carry out. In Jewish thinking, to be circumcised was to be in covenant with God. To be uncircumcised, though, was to be cut off from covenant with Yahweh and thus damned. Think about that from their perspective. To be uncircumcised would be cut off from covenant with Yahweh, and thus to be damned. In fact, in the book of Jubilees, which is not in our Bible, it's a non-canonical book of Jewish history from the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and New Testaments, it was written, I think we'll throw it up on the screen, this law is for all generations forever. It is an eternal ordinance ordained and written on the heavenly tablets. And everyone who is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day, 
listen to this, belongs not to the children of the covenant which the Lord made with Abraham, but to the children of destruction. So for the first century Jew, there were two types of people. There were those who were circumcised, and there were those who were damned. That's it. That's the context into which Paul is writing. So you could see why Jews would have been hesitant to accept any teaching which would seem to minimize circumcision. This also helps us to understand why it is that the major conflict that faces the early church is going to be over the issue of circumcision. In particular, should Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ, should they be circumcised? And this is really important because under the Mosaic Law, if a Gentile wanted to worship Yahweh, if a Gentile wanted to be saved, if a Gentile wanted to be in covenant with God, he would have to be circumcised. Not only would he have to be circumcised, but he would have to take on all of the precepts of the Mosaic Law. In effect, he would have to become culturally Jewish and live under its domain. He would have to eat what Jews ate, sacrifice what Jews sacrificed, wear what Jews wear, etc. So when Paul is here talking about circumcision, he's not just talking about circumcision in and of itself. He's talking about circumcision as a sign of something greater that is obedience to the entire Mosaic law. In fact, you often see circumcision used as a synecdoche for the law. That's a weird word, word that's fun to say, synecdoche. Synecdoche, what is a synecdoche? It's when a part of something is used to refer to the whole. When a part of something is used to refer to the whole. So imagine you're watching an interview on CNN or uh, elsewhere, and you see a general, and a general is talking about the fact that we have a bunch of boots on the ground, all right? Now, is he talking about the fact that we just airdropped some Doc Martens on them or something like that? No, obviously that's not his point. His point, point is not merely that we have thrown boots at the enemy. Boots are a symbol, they're a part of the whole, which is the soldier. Or imagine that you're uh, talking to someone and you say, hey man, look at those wheels. Because you're like in the 50s or something like that. Uh, well, now, obviously, you're probably not talking about the fact that you really like their Goodyears or their Firestone. You're not talking about the tires. You're not talking about the hubcaps. Wheels is a synecdoche for the whole car. That's what you're saying. You're saying, look at that car. So circumcision is a synecdoche in that it refers to more than just circumcision. It refers to the entire Mosaic law. Circumcision, this is Paul's point, circumcision without obedience to the law is like boots without the soldier. It's like wheels without the rest of the car. It doesn't do anything because it doesn't stand alone. It's intended to be a part of something greater than itself. And because circumcision doesn't stand alone but represents a part of the larger law, you can't boast in circumcision while at the same time breaking the law. In Galatians, Paul writes this, Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, he says, Was anyone at the time of his call 
already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything when it comes to salvation or justification. Talk about offensive for a first century Jew. And yet this is a first century Jew. Paul is a first century Jew that is writing this very thing, saying circumcision counts for nothing. So imagine, if you will, you're a Jew that's growing up in this context, growing up in this first century context. Circumcision is your badge. It's what distinguishes you from other people. And being distinguished from other people is important because the entire point of the Mosaic Law, or one of the main points of the Mosaic Law, is to separate you from other people, to show that you're holy, to show that you're different, to show that you're unlike those dirty Gentiles. And with one swoop of the pen, Paul has just completely destroyed that argument. He said that circumcision by itself is of no advantage, neither possessing the law, which we've talked about before, nor circumcision itself are what matters. In other words, all the grounds for boasting are removed so that what is left is only grace. That's what Paul is doing here. Now, Paul will say that there is some value to circumcision. We'll get to that next week. But for now, Paul says that any benefit or value from circumcision comes only as you keep the entire law, which, by the way, when we get to chapter 3, we'll see no one does. So let's see how he develops this further in verses 26 through 27. In verses 26 through 27, he says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised will keep, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So it stands to reason that if a circumcised Jew can be considered uncircumcised for failing to obey the law, then an uncircumcised Gentile can be considered circumcised for obeying the law. That sounds reasonable to us, but again, you have to remember how revolutionary, how radical this would have been for a first century Jew. Bear in mind what we read from the book of Jubilees. If you were not circumcised, you were not a son of Abraham, and thus you are a son of destruction. But Paul is saying here that you can be regarded You can be counted. This is a word that's going to have huge significance when we get into chapter 4, this word regarded or counted. You can be regarded or counted as circumcised even if you are not. And furthermore, he says, those who are not physically circumcised but are obedient will sit in judgment over those who are physically physically circumcised but disobedient. In other words, what he's saying here is that the salvation of Gentiles, they're going to serve as a witness a witness for the prosecution in giving evidence of what the Jew could and should have been. Circumcision as a sign of, God, of access to God's law provides greater opportunity to know God and His will and thus greater accountability for failing to act on that knowledge. So Paul's saying is what matters is not circumcision in and of itself, but keeping the entire law, obedience to the law. So does this mean that we today can just keep the Mosaic law and be saved? Can we just keep the Mosaic law and therefore be considered circumcised? Can we just keep the law and therefore be justified? Can Gentiles, or even Jews for that matter, simply keep the law today and be saved? The answer is obviously no. That's not Paul's point at all. 
for at least a few different reasons. First, we'll see in our very next section of the text this morning that it's not ultimately what we do, but what the Spirit does that saves us. Paul's building toward the necessity of grace over and over. Second, in addition to this, remember the entire context that we're talking about in chapter 2. The entire context is condemnation. Paul's not writing, what must you do to be saved? He's writing, why you're condemned. Why you're not saved in and of uh, itself, yourself. So the entire context is building this defense of our condemnation. The context is not justification here. The context is not redemption or salvation. That will come as we get to chapter 3. And then third, in addition to all these, no one fully lives up to the law, so we can't keep the law. Even in the hypothetical example, the uncircumcised person that he talks about is not fully keeping the law because the law commanded circumcision. So because of sin, the law merely restricts. It condemns us until the gospel comes and liberates us which is where Paul is taking us next. What he's doing is he's systematically closing every single door for us, whether Jew or Gentile, so that there is no other door by which we may enter, no other door by which we might escape condemnation except for the door of the gospel. I want to give a little illustration of this, why we can't simply obey the Mosaic law today and expect to be saved. Recently in a sermon I mentioned that I uh, loved Luby's, Judge me if you want. But ever since then, for some reason, uh, a number of people, whenever we have uh, decided that we're going to go and do lunch, a number of people said, hey, let's go to Luby's. And then, uh, and then recently, uh, somebody uh, slid a coupon under my door for a dollar off at, uh, at Luby's. And my first thought was, the nearest Luby's is like 15 miles from here. A dollar off? Like a meal there is like $15. At least give me something enticing or alluring to take me all the way to Plano. But my second thought was, whoever it was that did this, whoever it was that slid the coupon under my door, must not have been paying attention to the sermon. The whole point of my sermon was that I got some sort of fried fish poisoning there. Right? So I'm not eager to go back to Luby's. I once got sick on Taco Bell 13 years ago, and I've not been back since. I hold grudges when it comes to some place giving me food poisoning. Or I thought then maybe this person was paying attention, and this is like a threat or a warning. <laughs> I turned over the coupon, and on the back, hashtag, not my pastor. Not really. It didn't really have that. What, is this, what does any of this coupon Luby talk have to do with the law? Uh, well, the, the Mosaic law, you can think of it kind of like a coupon or a gift certificate, but it's already been used. Or... In, in a kind of another way of thinking, it's, it's expired. It's no longer valid. The law never really justified, but it provided a shadow of the substance that we see in Christ. The law provides sacrifices. The law provides ceremonies to point us toward Christ. But once Christ has come and fulfilled the law, the coupon is no longer valid. Now the law is like an expired coupon, but that doesn't mean that it's worthless. You ever seen one of those coupons that has a map on it? That's kind of like what the law is. It has a map. In and of itself, it's expired. It's no longer good. It's no longer useless, uh, useful uh, for what it was originally intended to do. But it instead now points us toward the one who has fulfilled the law. It points us to our need for Jesus. We've talked about this over the past couple of weeks, that the law itself isn't bad. The law itself is good. The Mosaic law 
the law that's given to Israel in the wilderness. It's not bad, it's good. But because of our sin, we misuse it. People are bad. The law is good, people are bad. And so the law is like a car, which is an instrument of blessing. But sin has made us all inebriated. It's made us all intoxicated. And in our drunken stupor, what was intended as an instrument of blessing has become an instrument of curse for us. Or the illustration that Zach used last week, that the law is like a trampoline. And as long as we're healthy, the trampoline is fun. But what sin has done is it's come and it's broken our legs and maybe even broken our arms so that what was intended to be this fun thing, this good thing for us, has now become an instrument of our torture. So if the law cannot save, what does? The full answer will come in chapter 3 again whenever this serpent that's constricting us is cut off of us. But he gives us just a little bit of a foretaste in the next verses. So let's look at verses 28 through 29. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now the idea of a circumcised heart is not novel. In fact, the Mosaic law itself is going to speak of the need of a circumcised heart. Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So in the Old Testament, in the intertestamental period, that is the period between the Old and the New Testaments, there was an expectation that God would circumcise the hearts of His people. So that part wasn't novel. That part wasn't revolutionary. What was novel and revolutionary are two different things. First, this expectation that the Jews had that God would circumcise the hearts of His people was an eschatological expectation. The word eschatological means something that happens at the end. And yet we see this happening in the middle of time. Not merely at the end of time, but in the middle of time, as the end has already begun in Jesus Christ. We see this language throughout the Gospels, that the, uh, the already but not yet of the kingdom, that the kingdom has already been inaugurated in Jesus Christ, that we see the effects of sin beginning to be unraveled in the work of Jesus Christ. As the, uh, the blind see, the, the deaf hear, the lame walk, even the dead are raised in Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits. So what was expected to happen at the end of time is happening even now in the middle of time. What Jews had expected to be this eschatological event, in the end, God would circumcise the hearts of His people. God is doing even now in the middle of time. That's the first reason that this would have been radical. The second reason that this would have been radical is because this expectation was just for Jews. There was no expectation that you could have an uncircumcised flesh and yet have a circumcised heart. Those things went together. Yes, uh, yes and amen, uh, first century Jews absolutely believed that you had to have a circumcised heart, but they thought only those who have a circumcised body can have a circumcised heart. This would have been unbelievable to a lot of Jews, but it shouldn't have been. After all, the very promise, the very uh, promise that's given to Abraham was that Abraham's family would be a blessing to all of the nations. There was always this desire uh, for the reconciliation of the world. 
people of all tongues and tribes and nations and people groups. Some people, some people think of the church as kind of a parenthesis. God has plans with Israel. God has plans with Israel. And in the middle, the church is kind of a parenthesis. That's the exact opposite of the way the Bible talks about it. God is always concerned with reconciling the world, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And Israel is a parenthesis to get us to the true Israelite who is Jesus Christ, who will then reconcile people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's the second reason that this would have been revolutionary is because the expectation was not only that it was eschatological, that it would happen at the end of time, but that it was also ethnic, that it would only happen for Jews So a circumcised heart wasn't novel, but what was novel was the idea that a circumcised heart was all that mattered. What matters is not a circumcised body, but a circumcised heart. And Paul says that that's accomplished by the Spirit and not the letter. Letters written on stone like the Mosaic law don't change hearts, only the Spirit does. The letter makes demands, the law makes demands, but the Spirit gives power. Zach mentioned this uh, kind of a famous saying last week, uh, just in passing. I had it in my notes to include, so I'll mention it again as well. It's often attributed to John Bunyan, uh, who wrote the classic Pilgrim's Progress, although most people now don't think that he wrote it. It's also sometimes attributed to a guy named John Barrage, who was an English revivalist. Uh, But last time uh, I checked, we don't really know who came up with this. But it's this saying, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. In other words, the letter of the law merely makes demands. It doesn't provide the antidote to sin or the power to obey those demands, but the gospel provides the means and the power by the Spirit. So what Paul's saying here is the circumcision that matters is not a circumcision that occurs in the flesh by the letter of the law, by the hands of a father or a priest or a rabbi, the circumcision that matters is the circumcision of the heart. And that happens by the Spirit of God in the gospel, which is profound because we see this complete redefinition of the people of God. Membership in the family of God, membership of the people of God is is no longer something that can be viewed ethnically or genetically or biologically or externally. It's this inward reality met by spiritual and not physical conditions. Again, it's a circumcision of the heart rather than a circumcision of the flesh. So notice what Paul's done here. He's just added this new layer, this new dimension, this new nuance to the meaning of the word Jew. To be a Jew in the New Testament sense is a spiritual condition rather than a physical condition. In other words, Gentiles who worship Christ are more closely related to Abraham than unbelieving Jews, than ethnic Jews who don't worship Christ. If part of you flinches when I say that, if part of you feels like that's anti-Semitic or something like that, then you've not understood and grasped the flow of Paul's thought and theology. He said, yes, blood is thicker than water, but Christ's blood and baptismal waters are thicker than everything else. This is an idea that we see not only here in Romans 2, we'll see it again later in Romans, but we see it uh, actually in a number of places in Paul's writings. Look at Galatians 3, 7 through 9. We'll put it up behind me. 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, listen to this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then lastly, Ephesians 3, which we walked through last year. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Notice that Paul doesn't just say that Gentiles can be saved. That would be incredible enough. He says they're members of the same body. They're joined, they're united to the same history and heritage and hope of Israel. He calls Gentiles Jews. That's incredible. Under the Mosaic Covenant, only some members of the covenant community were circumcised, and only some were saved. You only circumcised males, you didn't circumcise females. And within ethnic Israel, there was a spiritual Israel. Not all Israel was saved. Not all Israel was faithful. Not all Israel actually clung uh, to God. So within uh, ethnic Israel, you had spiritual Israel as well. So under the Mosaic Covenant, only some members of the covenant community were circumcised and only some were saved. But notice what Paul's saying here. In the New Covenant, all are circumcised in the heart. And all are saved. That is what's revolutionary about the new covenant. That's what's new about the new covenant. Whereas in ethnic Israel, not all are circumcised and not all are saved. In the new covenant, all are circumcised in heart and all are saved. So what's a Jew today? Well, it depends obviously on what you mean. There is still a usage that we use in our common vernacular to refer to the ethnic Uh, people of Israel, those who are physically descending. But in this New Testament context, the way that Paul would use the term, it's a spiritual condition. A true Jew, a spiritual Jew can be either ethnically Jew or Gentile. A Jew in this sense is marked by a circumcised heart rather than circumcised flesh. Now, some people would teach that there is this sort of separate covenant that God maintains with Israel that he has a covenant with the church and he has a covenant with uh, Israel and those two things exist uh, simultaneously. We've talked about that a little bit before. It's called dual covenant theology. We talked about why uh, that isn't accurate. In fact, some people uh, used to teach, uh, this was a a pretty common uh, teaching about 100 years ago or so, that the eternal destinies of Israel and the church were totally different. So Israel lives on the new earth, and the church lives in the new heavens, and kind of ne'er the two shall meet, which is absolutely crazy in light of what we've just read, that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled into one body, that Gentiles even can be called Jews, not by virtue of circumcised flesh, but by virtue of a circumcised 
heart. So Paul himself is an ethnic Jew, but he's also going to say that's of no advantage when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the gospel, that sin is this equal opportunity hater, and it condemns everyone. We're all condemned together and in need of grace, and God's grace is as impartial as His justice. He doesn't limit His love to Jews or Gentiles or men or women or rich or poor or whatever other things in which we may boast. So how does this circumcision of the heart happen? What happens through what we know as regeneration? Being born again, being given a new nature by the Spirit through the gospel. When we're born again, our hearts are circumcised and we're grafted into the promises and history of Israel because we're joined to the true Israel, that is Jesus Christ, the true seed, the true offspring, Jesus Christ. Now, you might get to this point in the sermon and you might be thinking, what does it matter if I'm a Jew or not? I don't get up in the morning wishing that I were a Jew. This isn't some sort of felt need for me. So I want to give a little bit of an illustration to help you see why this is important. Friday evening, uh, Casey and Larkin and I, that's my wife and daughter, went to uh, Hutchins Barbecue, which is a great place. And uh, we got there at 5, because if you get there at 5.15, you wait three hours. And uh, so we got there at 5. We were able to get in and, uh, and we're eating. And at one point, I decided I'm going to give uh, Larkin a little pickle chip. A slice of pickle. She's never really tasted that before, and, uh, and so I gave it to her, and she took it, and, uh, and she bit into it, and the look on her face, at first it was just kind of a, this look of kind of, I'm disgusted, and then there was this look of just betrayal. You have betrayed me. You've given this thing to me, and so she goes to hand it back to me, and as I then reach out, she then takes it back, and then she starts eating it, and then she starts eating more and more and more, and now we found out that she loves pickles. Uh, but the look on her face reminds me of the fact that uh, my dad, uh, growing up in this Japanese orphanage, uh, was called Pickleson, which means Mr. Pickle, right? The reason he was called Pickleson was because apparently he always had this really sour face, uh, sour look on his face, all right? So uh, there in the Japanese orphanage, they called him Pickleson. Uh, because he always had a, uh, a sour face. Now, I've talked before about my dad's uh, uh, adoption because this is a really good illustration of redemption. Adoption is this spiritual metaphor for the way that we are grafted into uh, the promises of God. And I uh, talked about, uh, before about how the fact that when he was adopted from Japan, we didn't know anything of his ethnicity. In fact, we didn't know anything of his ethnicity until uh, our family was able to go and visit the orphanage in 2010. Uh, and uh, actually, there in a records room of the orphanage, we kind of pulled out some things and we found this document from uh, when my dad was first brought into the orphanage and it had his mom's name on it. And for the first time, we knew that my dad had an uh, ethnic, ethnically Japanese uh, mother. Now, imagine... Imagine if in that little orphanage records room, as we're sitting around, imagine if we'd have found out that my dad was the heir to Toyota or Sony or Hello Kitty or something like that. <laughs> Talk about life-changing, right? Nobody's calling him Mr. Pickle after that, right? That's what the text is saying. The text is saying that we are heirs, that we have been grafted into this inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. That joy, that hope, that life, that grace, that mercy, that the kingdom, all of these things are ours because we have been joined to the true Israel. If that's not a felt need, 
then your feelings are broken. The text is saying that you are an heir and that your inheritance is riches beyond measure, beyond imagination. So as we transition to communion, I don't want us to try to manufacture a couple of applications from this text because that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is not what you should do or what I should do. The point of this text is not go and try harder or go and be better. The point of this text is not at all what you or I do. The point of this text is what the Spirit has done. So I think the application this morning is simply that we would marvel, that we would marvel at the Father who would give His Son for us, that we would marvel at the Father who has adopted us and made us His own, that we would marvel at the Son who is the true Jew who has fulfilled the law that we never could and died for us and for our sin, that we would marvel at the Spirit who circumcises our hearts, that we would marvel at all of the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll see how the text can lead us to the table. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You. I thank You for the Mosaic Law, which is a, an illustration of our need of grace, Lord. I thank You that the law has been fulfilled and we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. I thank You for the provision of Your Son. I thank You for the Spirit's work to circumcise the hearts of those who know and love Your Son. I pray that You would give us hearts that would long more for that and that you would continue to conform us to Christ's image. Bless us now as we partake in communion that you might be glorified, we might be edified and encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we want to invite you to join us. If you love and trust Jesus, if you've been baptized, and if you're not walking in any uh, known, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, Please take both the bread and the juice together. They're stacked on top of each other. And then just hold it, and we'll partake of it uh, shortly. And as we prepare for communion, I want to tell one last little story about my dad because it kind of connects to this passage. So bear in mind that we didn't know anything about my dad's ethnicity until uh, recently. So when I was growing up, my dad would tell me stories about one of his favorite activities in college, which was ping pong. My dad loved playing ping pong in college, and he would tell us all the time about how he had this reputation, that is, that he was the best non-Asian ping pong player at the University of Houston. That was his sort of reputation. That was his sort of badge of honor, right? The best non-Asian ping pong player at the, uh, the University of Houston. And literally, when we found out that he was actually half Japanese, one of the first things that I said to him was, I guess you weren't the best non-Asian ping pong player at the University of Houston after all. This is kind of like telling Uncle Rico he couldn't have won state or telling uh, Andy Bernard that uh, Cornell Acapella wasn't really that cool or whatever it is. My dad could have been absolutely devastated by this, but he wasn't. His life has not been built upon this sort of badge of being the best non-Asian ping pong player at the University of Houston. So he wasn't devastated. His ego wasn't uh, affronted or anything like that. Uh, because it wasn't a badge that he was carrying around for the past five decades. But this passage is going to make us confront some of our badges, some of our signs of identity. And good church folk can have all kinds of badges and all kinds of baggage. 
And Paul's saying here, if Jews couldn't boast in their circumcision, then we can't boast in our badges. Attending church doesn't make you a Christian. Having Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian. Praying a particular prayer of salvation or walking an aisle doesn't make you a Christian. Even being baptized doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Trying to do better or clean up your life doesn't make you a Christian. Not drinking, smoking, or chewing, or going with those who doing, I guess, would be the rhyme there. Leading a Bible study doesn't make you a Christian. Going to a community group, coming here each week doesn't make you a Christian or any of the million other badges in which we might boast. None of those things save us. None of those things make us Christ followers. It's only the work of the Spirit of God writing the gospel on our hearts. Everything else is just letter. Everything else is just an external sign like circumcision of the flesh. It's only the Spirit of God that gets beyond the letter of the law into the gospel of grace and writes it on our heart. There's only one means of escape, and that's the good news of King Jesus who has fulfilled the law, offered himself as a sacrifice, and rose again as vindication. So as we spend this time marveling at what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself, I want to ask you to consider if he's really done it for you. Are you trusting in some sort of badge? Are you trusting in some sort of external mark? Or are you trusting in the internal work, the inward work of the Spirit of God? Do you have a heart that longs for and loves Jesus and trusts not in what you have done, but what He has done? That's what we celebrate in communion. We celebrate what He has done decisively and definitively in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what communion is about.